This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I am your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you are here today. Today's episode is a follow-up episode with Dr. Stacy Sims. She came on the podcast episode 411, September 16th of this year, 2022. So if you have not heard that first episode, I would go ahead and go listen to that. We talk about women athletes in training and how you can manipulate your training a little bit based on where you are in your cycle and also how you eat. So that episode focused on women who are still having a regular menstrual cycle. So this episode is more focused on women who are perimenopausal and menopausal and how we can adjust our training as we age and we go through those changes with our body and how we can work with our body rather than against our body. Dr. Stacy Sims is really well known for her research and work on all things women athletes. Her motto is women are not small men. Work with your physiology, not against it. She has a really famous TED Talk called Women Are Not Small Men that you might want to go check out. So we talk about exercise, nutrition, and medicine, and I always feel like I learned so much from Stacy, and I am so happy to have her back on the show. I also want to let you all know that Stacy has micro learning courses and uh, the link to those will be in the show notes at sandyboyproductions.com and you can use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y for 20% off any of those courses. All right, friends, who is going to come down to Jacksonville, Florida and join me on the beaches of Jacksonville for the Donna Marathon weekend? This is a race I go to every single year. This year, the half marathon and marathon are Sunday, February 5th, and this is just an amazing weekend where all of the funds raised through this race go directly to the Donna Foundation, which helps individuals walking through a breast cancer diagnosis. And this whole weekend is just a celebration of fun. This is a flat, fast course. You don't actually run on the beach, but you do start and finish right on the beach, like right near the beach, and it's beautiful. It's a wonderful time of year to go down to Jacksonville, Florida in February. I'm going to be having meetups down there and I would love to get to know you all. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me talk about the Donna Foundation and the Donna Marathon weekend for a while. Make this your year. You have plenty of time to train for the half or the full. There's also a 5K the day before. It's just a wonderful destination marathon. It's so fun. Uh, So go to breastcancermarathon.com. You can use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, for 10% off your registration. If you do sign up, come to our Facebook group. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine and let us know that you're coming. I would love to get to know everybody who's going to be out there. All right, friends, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stacey Sims. All right, friends. Well, today on All Have Another, we have a returning guest. We're doing part two with Dr. Stacy Sims. Welcome back to the show, Stacy. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to diving in again. Really excited about this. We are going to hit on perimenopause and menopause 
for athletes in this episode. And that was something I had in my notes the first time we recorded, but there's just so much to talk about. We couldn't get to it. Right. Exactly. And there's a lot to talk about for this one, too. Yes. So we've had some really great feedback from the first episode talking about women who are still going through their menstrual cycle uh, and competing and training. Um, And today, you know, it's like this is something that even if you are 25 years old and you are listening to this podcast, you are going to walk through this. So important for all of us, really. Yeah, every woman's going to go through it. So I want to start with talking about, I think that we like get nervous we're going to slow down and be tired and gain weight when we enter into menopause. And let's start by just clarifying like what is perimenopause? How long does that last? And what does that look like? Yeah, so perimenopause can start as early as 35 And most women will really start to see something going awry in their mid-ish 40s. And what's happening is we're starting to have uh, what they technically say ovarian failure, but I hate that term. I know. I do too. We're not failing. We're not failing. We are just having more and more in ovulatory cycles and our ratios of our estrogen progesterone are starting to change. And we know that these sex hormones are tied to every system of the body. And if you think back to puberty, you know, and you, you know, all of the things that happen with puberty and girls, how their body composition changes and they become gangly and they kind of drop out of sport. Well, we're kind of having the reverse now. So now we're starting to have less and less hormone um, effects, so to speak. So when we look at perimenopause, a lot of women don't even realize they're in it Mm. because we might see our cycle length does not change, but we might have a change in our bleed pattern or we might not. Depends. Depends on how far into perimenopause you are. But the biggest telling thing is the nutrition and training that we've been doing up to this point is not working for us. Mm. We start saying, wait a second, I'm doing these hard workouts, but I can't quite hit the mark. Maybe I'm a little bit fatigued. I'm not recovering quite as well. Or... I don't understand why all of a sudden I'm putting on belly fat. I must be eating too much and not training enough. But in fact, it's his hormones because estrogen and progesterone are tightly tied to glucose homeostasis, meaning how our blood sugar works, also how our lean mass develops and how we control our metabolism during exercise. So when we start having an offstep of the ratios of these two hormones, our body's kind of like, hey, what's going on? And we end up with an increased amount of baseline cortisol. So we're stressed. We might feel a bit more tired but wired because we can't quite get into a parasympathetic. But if you go to your physician and explain all this, they're going to say, it's just where you are. Sorry, honey. You know, you have kids. You might have older parents. You're stressed out in your job. You just need to, like, find a way to de-stress. Instead of really digging in and going, hey, wait a second, you're in your 40-ish. Let's check out and see what's going on. Let's let's describe all these symptoms and see how many you have because you probably are in perimenopause and we can do something about that. Nothing could be more frustrating if you are an active human being who has had energy, been able to do these things, and then go to a doctor and then just tell you it's like just the phase of life you're in. Yeah, that is like so 
that's like so crushing to your soul, right? Yes. So yes. what are the things that doctors should be checking? Like what levels for your hormones and things like that? Well, we can't rely on one point in time blood tests. We have to look at trends. So we know that the best way to determine what's happening with your estrogen progesterone is to get an estradiol test on day two of your cycle, the second day of bleed, and a progesterone test on day 21 of your cycle. So 21 days after you started bleeding. And you do that and you see what those levels are, but you wanna do it over the course of a few months to see what's happening. And we start to see a trend, right? And if you are tracking that trend along with how your sleep's going, how your HRV is going, and how you're responding to training, we can get a really good picture of what is a little bit awry. Okay, you have to be so proactive. Like, I don't yes. know any doctor that's going to be like, let's do this on day two and day 21. And I mean, if you just ask for that, are they going to do it? You know, they should. They should. You you do have to advocate for your own health. And um, when I tell women, like, you need to go in and remember that you should be driving your own health. You don't. The doctor's there to advise, but they're not there to tell you what to do, mm. per se. If you go in and say, hey, you know, I heard this podcast and I've been reading up and I'm around the age and these are the things that are going on and I think I'm perimenopausal. If they say, hey, there's no blood test, then you just really have to advocate and say, I really want to know what my sex hormones are doing hmm. because it's really important to me with regards to making sure my menstrual cycle is is still you know functional, that there isn't any kind of disarray there. So you just really have to advocate. Or if you are and you know your physician, and unfortunately you got put into the insurance stream where they're not really listening that much, which happens a lot in the States, mm -hmm. then don't even mention perimenopause. Just say, hey, you know what? I'm really interested to see what's happening with my sex hormones, and I've been doing a lot of research, and I've been talking to people, and I know that I need to get my estrogen tested on day two, and I need to get my progesterone tested on day 21. And then they'll get the results, and then they can you can actually look and see over the course of trends and it's really easy to see what's happening. Um, and they can also interpret for you. And if it comes up a bit like you might be estrogen dominant or you might have really low levels. So it's, it's really just looking at what's happening within your own body, but you do have to advocate for yourself. Okay. This is probably feels like a very basic question to you, but what, what is happening? Like, is your estrogen dropping as you're um, heading into perimenopause? Actually, no. Your progesterone drops off. Okay, your, your estrogen, you become more estrogen dominant. Okay. Because progesterone is produced after ovulation from the degradation of the follicle the egg was in. So if you don't ovulate, then you don't have the degradation of that, so you don't have progesterone. But we know that most women will have a few anovulatory cycles when they're premenopausal like before they get into perimenopause. Um, but it's if you have a consistent amount of anovulatory cycles, then you start to have an exposure of estrogen dominance. And this is where we see increased body fat, we see bloating, we see disrupted sleep, we see some cardiovascular risk factors because estrogen can cause some cell proliferation and cause an inflammatory response. So when you start really seeing metabolic changes and you see body composition changes, this is where you're like, hmm, okay, I really need to see what's going on with my estrogen. Okay, this might feel a little off topic, but is this when you might see like an estrogen 
um, driven breast cancer come up? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So prophylactically to feel better during this time, if you do see that you're super estrogen dominant and your progesterone is going down, what can we do like naturally prophylactically to feel better? Yeah. So there's quite a few things. A lot of people are driven towards the idea that they have to take hormones because of all of the stuff that's going out there and saying, you know, it's, it's safe. It is relatively safe, but it's a therapy. So we'll put that in the, at a lot, kind of a last minute. If you're having really bad vasomotor symptoms, hot flushes, night sweats, really significant mood swings, and you just can't get on top of it. But if we look at what we can do proactively, first and foremost is we look at what kind of training we're doing. So if we're looking at being an endurance athlete, being a runner, and you're doing lots of long, slow stuff, this is the exact opposite of what you should be doing at this point in time. Because when we take away the effect of the hormones, women's bodies are naturally able to go long and slow. So what we need to do is we need to look and see what kind of external stress can we apply to the body to support adaptation the way the hormones used to. So we look at polarizing our training. So we want to do some top end stuff and some really super, super, super easy, easy zone one type walk run stuff for time on our feet. The second thing that really happens when we hit perimenopause is we lose strength and power. So you might find, I don't feel so strong running on the hills. I wonder what's going on. I'm not recovering that well. But it's really because estrogen is, is very much part of muscle protein synthesis as well as muscle contraction. So if we look at estrogen and how it affects a muscle contraction, you have this gap between the nerve and the muscle fiber. And when you have a signal from the central nervous system, it comes down the nerve to that gap. And then we have a, a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine that crosses that gap and causes the muscle fiber to what they call depolarize. So this causes your actin and myosin to come together for contraction. Estrogen can regulate how much acetylcholine is in there. So if you're having a misstep in how much estrogen is there, either lots or little, you'll have a misstep in how strong that contraction is. So we know that women lose strength because the body is like, I don't know what to do here. The other thing that estrogen does is it signals the very basic stem cell of the muscle fiber to regenerate. And so when you have lots of estrogen or not so much, you have misstep in that signaling as well. And the last thing that estrogen is responsible for is if we look at our contractile proteins, you have an actin and a myosin, and you imagine that they're sliding together in a filament or sliding together like a ladder. And actin grabs on to myosin, and it creates this really strong contraction. But estrogen interferes with that mm. in a good way in the fact that it creates a really strong bond, but when it starts to have a misstep, you don't have such a strong contraction. So we look at these two things, and this is how we see women are losing strength, they're losing power, they're losing lean mass. So we have to look at lifting heavy loads. So we have to look at going to the gym or looking at lifting loads that with good form, we are failing around six reps. Okay. So we're doing power-based training. So it's not 
eight to 12. It's not body weight stuff because that is not a strong enough stress to create a central nervous system and a, a satellite cell response to build lean mass and keep power and strength. So we need to lift heavy. Okay, to question there. Recreate it. Yeah. So lifting heavy so that going to six is failure. Would you recommend like only lifting heavy, like never even messing with the 12 reps or 10 reps and that kind of stuff at that point? You can do some undulating periodization, but the the biggest bang for your buck, which is what we're after, is doing the heavy lifting or cluster sets where you're doing a two reps, 10 second pause, two reps, 10 second pause, another two reps, 10 second pause, and that's your set. So you end up doing six, maybe eight, but it's not like eight in a row. Okay. Because you need to be able to lift that load and it has to feel heavy to the point where at the end you're like, I just can't do another lift. I just can't do it. And we have a lot of recovery between sets because it's central nervous system driven. Because you'll see a lot of women, they'll go to the gym and they're like, oh, I'm doing a heavy set here. I'm going to do five by five. They finish all five by five. And in between, they're doing a superset. That is not lifting heavy. Mm. You've just done five sets of five, but you haven't done five sets of five to failure. And when you're supersetting, it's becoming more of a cardiovascular workout. And that's not what we're after. We're after the, you know, the bros that sit on the edge of the bench and they're like <laughs> hanging out and you're like, can I use the bench please? And they're like, I'm between my sets. That's what we're after. We're after lift heavy, recover maybe two to three minutes between so that your entire central nervous system regenerates and can do it again. Okay. I have a question about, um, like reformer Pilates, which is kind of like irrelevant to yeah. the heavy lifting, but I love going to reformer class like once or twice a week and it's obviously not heavy lifting, but a lot of the moves we do, if you do them right, you do them super slow and you, you get to the point where you are shaking. Is that effective in perimenopause? I mean, or am I just doing it because I feel like it's helping me not get injured? It, it is effective for power and resilience. Okay. And, and, and when we're looking from that power perspective, the ability to be able to foot place and not step off the curb and fall, right? Mm. So it's really good for proprioception type power. But when we're looking at that estrogen replacement with regards to external stress, not quite there. Okay. But it's definitely a fantastic complement because the other thing is we need to look at plyometrics and, and um, balance flexibility and proprioception. And that's where um, Pilates can fall in. Okay. That's great to know because I really love my Pilates. So this episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. I'm so grateful to have them on board for the podcast. Inside Tracker was created by leading scientists in aging genetics, biometrics, and Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you are not. We put so much time and energy into running or whatever it is you personally are passionate about and I just think to be able to know what your levels are especially for your iron and things like that it's key so with inside tracker they will take your blood panel and then they will give you those results and give you an ultra personalized performance system that analyzes all the data from your blood DNA lifestyle and it will help you learn how to optimize your body and reach your goals for a limited time 
you can receive 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you go to insidetracker.com slash another. If you go to that exact landing page, that should automatically apply the 20%. If that's not working, just use the code another and that will get you 20% off. Um, you know, one of the things I know that a lot of people listening are going to want to ask about um, is those short high intensity intervals. I knew that was one of the things that we needed to focus on as we get into perimenopause, menopause. But a lot of these people are like, but I'm still wanting to train for marathons. Like I still have to get my long slow days in too. So how do we shift from what we were doing pre-perimenopause to still being able to train for marathons and getting those long slow days in that you have to do because you got to get the time in on your feet. Because some people are training and they're doing like, you know, mile repeats, 400 repeats. But you're talking even shorter, aren't you? Yep. So when we're looking at it, there's a couple of ways of thinking about the periodization for a marathon. A lot of people go with that linear periodization where you have to put the time in for base. Then you do a little bit of speed work. Then you do a little bit of... um like peaking and, and like the top end stuff, then you do your race and then you recover. So it's very stringent and this is this block and this is this block. Mm-hmm. When we get into perimenopause, we want to think about what's called nonlinear undulating periodization. So what we do is we go, here's this week. And in this week, I'm focusing on strength. So I'm going to do lots of quality work in the week. And that would be something like you do a heavy gym session and then you do three to five one minute intervals on the treadmill where it's cranked up. So you're taking the fatigue from the heavy lifting, which you've done compound movements like deadlifts or squats, and then you're putting it into your running form on the treadmill in an incline. Mm. So you are getting strong through that running form, right? And then we might go, okay, well, I have a Tuesday morning track session all the time and I want to stay with that track session. So then what we do is we warm up with some plyometric moves. So we're doing um, bounding, we're doing uh, counter movement jumps. So you're getting that explosiveness. So then when you go to your track session, everything is really potentiated to be able to put that economy motion into your four eight hundreds. And then we look on the weekend, super, super, super easy, easy, long, slow stuff. And instead of going out and going, I have a two to two and a half hour run I have to do. We go on Saturday, I'm going to do a 90 minute walk run where if I have to go up a hill, my rating of perceived exertion isn't going to exceed a four on a scale of one to 10. And then on Sunday, you go out and you do an hour that is... I guess a little bit less than tempo. So you're super easy. And then you're putting in maybe one minute bursts to be able to pick up the pace and recover, pick up the pace and recover. So you're getting time on the feet, but you have more adequate recovery between and you're working with your body. So then the next week might be power. And so then you're looking, okay, I have power-based movements. You're doing your heavy lifting. And then on the treadmill, you're doing sprint interval training where you're going 20 seconds as hard as you can, a minute off, 20 seconds as hard as you can, a minute off. So you're working on the explosiveness through your form. Track session still warming up with bounding and jumping, and then you're doing your track session. And then on the weekend, it's only one long, maybe 90 minutes to an hour 45 of that 
hike, run, walk stuff for time on the feet. Sunday off. Do you have one? And then you have what we call a deload week. So it's a week of really looking at how am I polarizing? I want to be completely recovered because I've just done two weeks of really intensive, like quality work in the week, time on the feet. So in this recovery week on the Wednesday or Thursday, we pick it up a little bit and we do a two hour, Mm. a two hour, super, super cruisy, slow stuff. Instead of going, have to have X amount of miles per week. We look at the quality of the training and we have the eye that over 16 weeks, we want to accumulate a certain amount of time on the feet. Yeah, I think people have a really hard time wrapping their mind around that because of exactly what you just said. They want to see, oh, I ran 47 miles this week or, oh, I ran 56 miles this week. Um, but what if someone's like training to break three hours in the marathon, like this run walk stuff? Is that like, is that really Beautiful. sufficient? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, we always say you have to go slow to go fast mm. because what happens when people have the eye as I want to run three hours or less is they go out and they do their long runs way too hard. Yeah. And then their quality track work isn't hard enough. Mm. They don't polarize it. So they never really get faster. So they'll go out and they'll be like, I'm on track for the first 13 miles to break the three hour. And then boom, they're off the back. They start slowing and slowing and slowing. And they finish it like 3.05. Mm-hmm. Or the worst is three hours and 59 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we're explaining it, it's like the coaching protocols that are out there right now have been based on male data and still to this day implement based on male data and the male physiology because coaching hasn't quite caught up with the science. So we look at the physiological differences. We know that women are already really good at going long and slow. We are more endurant. We have more proteins in the mitochondria for facilitating and using free fatty acids. We don't have to train that. What Mm -hmm. we do have to train is our joints and our tendons and our ligaments to be more resilient, to be strong. So that's this is what the quality is about. Because when we hit perimenopause, we start getting more soft tissue injuries. We start having more laxity in our tendons. We start recovering a little bit poorly. We start having more soft little niggles in our muscles. So we need to focus on that resilience through strength and through that high-intensity rebound plyo type stuff. Because all of that builds on being super resilient to be able to maintain pace and speed in the back half of a marathon. And it's this mentality that so many people have from the old school idea of marathon training is you have to have this huge amount of volume in order to go fast and complete the marathon. But in fact, we know that you drop it way back and we're focusing on quality with some volume instead of lots of volume with a little bit of quality. When are you getting your like marathon pace practicing in though? Because, you know, a lot of training plans will do, say you have an 18 mile run, 10 miles easy, eight miles at marathon pace so that your body knows how that feels. So this is where we're looking again at that undulating periodization model, right? And so when we start getting closer to race day, instead of doing your 100 or your one mile repeats on the track. This is where you're doing your marathon efforts on the track. So you can really keep track of what's going on because you have the 400 and you keep time. Do you really know what it feels like? It's a bit boring, but <laughs> you, you start dropping that, that 
faster intensity on the track and really focus on marathon pacing because that's what the track sessions are about. First, you're trying to get economy of movement through speed. And then from that strength and resilience from all the quality training you're doing about a month out before the marathon, you are replacing those higher intensity track sessions with specific work for marathon pacing. Okay. So for someone who's like, I don't know, everybody goes through this at different ages. So say we're talking about Sarah, who is 45 and feels like, okay, this is happening. I feel like this is happening. She goes and gets her blood work done, finds out she's estrogen dominant. Her progesterone's not as high. Um, do you just like suddenly make this shift? I think a lot of people are going to be like, how do I go from this, what I'm so used to, to just moving straight to this? You know, it can feel overwhelming. Yeah, it's phasing it in. Just the same as when I tell people you need to lift heavy. I'm not going to make someone go to the gym on that day and start lifting heavy. We need to work with the body to meld it to be able to take on the load. So it's if you're consistently doing block training, a typical marathon training, then we start looking at, okay, during the week, what are some of your sessions? We normally see Tuesday, Thursday, interval type sessions, right? So Tuesday might be track, Thursday might be hill reps. So we start modifying what you're doing in those sessions to fit a little bit better. So instead of just going out for 20 minute warm up and then specific hill intervals on Thursday, we look and do, okay, we're going to do some mobilization, some heavy lifting, maybe it's just deadlifts or maybe it's just squats, then into our hill reps. So it might be a five minute, but if you don't have access to doing heavy stuff before your hill reps, then we do a 10 minute warm up and then hill reps. And then at the top of that hill rep, you're doing 20 air squats or we're doing 20 um, jumping squats to get some plyo and some movement in there. So it's slowly phasing in to get the body more resilient to what you're doing. And over the course of a month, we start phasing in more of what you need to be doing as perimenopause and less of what you need to be doing if you're a dude or you're 20. So it's not a, a complete shift. Again, it's phasing in slowly. One, it gets us used to the difference in training. Two, we're kind of training to be training that way. And three, it reduces injury risk. Um, your newest book, Next Level, addresses this. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. It's all about peri and postmenopause. Yep. And then you also have a course specific for this. Yeah, we do. We okay. Do. We just relaunched the menopause for active women. Um, so we had it before the book came out. And then there was lots of stuff from a science perspective that's come out in the past couple of years. So we revamped it and just re-released it. And we have something like 10 case studies on different, um, like marathon, ultra running, cycling, all that kind of stuff. And then I go through all of the periodization models and how to implement if you are a marathoner or if you are a strength athlete. So yeah, it talks about all the stuff that's happening to your body, what kind of training and nutrition things you can do, and then how to actually implement it. Well, I just, I think there's probably a lot of running coaches that listen to this podcast and I think that we'd all be doing our athletes a service if we really got educated on this. A lot of people coming to look for running coaches are in their 40s. I mean, of course, when can you afford a running coach in your 40s? <laughs> I right. mean, it's a it's a yeah. luxury to be able to hire a running coach. And um, I just think that there's a lot of cookie cutter ways that people are training their athletes, whether they're 20, 30, 40, 50. And it's just 
it doesn't fly for everybody. Mm-mm, no. So we need to educate ourselves. We, yeah, of course. And that's why we're, that's why you and I are chatting right now. Um, I have a question. <laughs> I, I pulled, I pulled some questions from my Facebook group from the first time that we recorded and the specific questions I got were more perimenopause and menopausal questions. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to ask a couple of these real quick. Okay. This is from my friend, Teresa. I'm just going to read her what she says. This menopause stuff is awful. <laughs> I would definitely like some tips on how to tweak nutrition eating so that I'm not gaining weight. It's so frustrating. I have kept up running and walking so that I still average 25 to 30 miles a week and I've added regular strength training. I haven't started eating more, but yet this belly just appeared and keeps growing. If I try to cut back on portions, then I feel too tired and hungry to keep up with my training. There's got to be a solution to this madness. There is a solution to the madness. One, don't cut back on your food. But two, we have to look at what's happening with the gut microbiome. So there's been some really super interesting research that's come out looking at what's happening specifically to the gut microbiome when we start going through perimenopause, postmenopause. We start losing diversity. And it's really essential to try to maintain that diversity. For the most part, the biggest thing is when we are looking at our sex hormones and how they work in our body. When our ovaries produce estrogen, progesterone, adrenals, you know, testosterone, it all has to go to the liver first to be metabolized. But what's actually happening there is it's being bound to a sex hormone binding globulin. Then that compound gets excreted as bile into the intestines. And it's in the intestines that bacteria actually unbind it and release it back into the bloodstream to be active. When we start having less estrogen or less progesterone, we are losing some of those bugs that actually unpack it to send it back out. So then all of a sudden we have an upsurge of estrogen. These bugs are like, I don't know what to do. So we start having a misstep. And the other thing that happens is it's not just the sex hormones that are changing, but we have a higher stress content because we are now more sympathetically driven. So we have more cortisol. So we're getting a change in the bacteria in our gut that is also encouraging the stress response. And unfortunately, the bacteria that does that is part of what we call the Firmicutes phyla. And we know that the Firmicutes phyla is associated with obesity. We know that the Firmicutes phyla is really, really good at taking out every little bit of energy from all the food, and then we end up storing more. So how do we change this diversity, right? So we can look at using DIM as a, as a supplement. We increase the amount of cruciferous and fibrous veggies that we're eating. We have to look at really having a colorful plate of fruit and veg because we need a lot of fiber to feed the deep gut bacteria to maintain diversity. So we aren't reaching for over-the-counter probiotics we're eating fermented foods mm. and we are not reaching for prebiotics because that's not what we need. We need the real fiber because if we're feeding all the good bacteria then we have an increased amount of what we call bacteriotes and that is the bacteria that is associated with lean mass and the lack of body fat storage. So it's really attenuation to diet. So many people are like, I've changed my training, but nothing's happening. It's like, we also have to look at changing our diet. You want to eat according to what you are doing, definitely. 
having a good amount of protein because we also become more anabolically resistant. So we need a higher amount of protein regardless of when and what we're doing for exercise. And we need a huge amount of fiber. I shouldn't say huge, but a lot of fiber to change that gut microbiome to better our bodies instead of going, oh, great, now we're losing diversity and I put this belly fat on and I just can't budget. Um, what's DEM? DEM is diendylmethane and it is uh, a compound that is really part of cruciferous vegetables. So they say, eat your cauliflower and broccoli. It's really good for estrogen metabolism. Okay. But you'd have to eat like six or seven heads of cauliflower to get <laughs> the amount that you need. So you can buy DIM okay. supplement and it's 200 milligrams a day. Okay. And that helps with it all. Is that something just in general you recommend to anybody going through perimenopause? Yes, for the most part, because it really does help manage the amount of estradiol to uh, a weaker estrogen that we have. So your body knows when and what to use, so to speak. So you don't have as many effects of estrogen dominance. It also helps um, increase estrogen or testosterone and progesterone effects. So it really works with our sex hormones to help us balance it. Um, I also recommend it for a lot of teenage athletes when they're going through puberty and everything's all over the show, instead of reaching for oral contraceptive pill, we just use a little bit, we use the 200 milligrams of DIM every day and it helps the body metabolize sex hormones in a positive manner. Hey friends, this episode of the podcast is supported by Gooder. If you are looking for an awesome pair of sunglasses that don't slip around when you're on the go, Look no further than Gooder. They have really classic styles as well as really fun and loud styles. My go-to pair are the Aviators. I love just the standard black Aviator shades. I also love the Breakfast Run to Tiffany's. And in races, I like to wear the fun colors. I think it's super fun and brings a little bit of attitude and sass to a race. So go to gooder.com slash another Use the code ANOTHER15, that's ANOTHER15, to save 15% off your order. All right, back to the show. Um, you know, I'm so curious what your thoughts are on hormone replacement therapy, and I'm going to tell you why, selfishly, I'm going to be having a, a prophylactic hysterectomy, ovaries, and everything because of I'm a high-risk ovarian cancer, of ovarian cancer, so I'm like, doing that on my own before my 40th birthday. Um, and so obviously that's going to send me into menopause. I'm just, I'm just curious, like what would you do in that situation hormone wise if you were yeah. 39 years old? Yeah. So the thing with surgical menopause is you go from being non-menopausal to menopausal overnight. So you don't have these four, five, six years where your body's going through all these changes. So what I've worked with a lot of athletes and active people is you get as strong as possible before you go in. So you have a lot of lean mass, not a lot of body fat, and you're ready to go. Then after surgery, we look at, okay, our training has changed. Our diet has changed. What do we do? We want to talk to our physician about using hormone therapy. And it is a therapy. It's not a replacement because, mm. you know, 
We're not trying to go in and, and recreate what our body used to produce because when we're looking at the exogenous hormones, they don't quite do the same, primarily because of that liver metabolism I was talking about. But it is really critical for people who go through surgical menopause to have that conversation with their doctor. Otherwise, they're going to end up with really severe symptoms. So when we look at what's available, we want to make sure you're using micronized progesterone because that is what the body recognizes and can be used. And you want to look for um, ethanol estradiol. You don't want conjugated estrogens. You don't want a progestin. You want micronized progesterone and ethylene estradiol because those two are metabolized relatively similar to the way your natural hormones are. And you want to use the least effective dose. And it might take some time to dial it in. As you're dialing that in, you've also changed your training and your nutrition to be more polarized and having more protein and lots of colorful fruit and veg. If we do that, then I've had really fantastic success with a lot of women who've gone through immediate surgical menopause and chemotherapy-induced menopause, where all of a sudden their bodies change and then we implement things and then boom, they're back to how they felt before, definitely not as fast as when you're in your 20s, but now they're like, okay, I am a 40-year-old woman. I'm not 60. Mm. So definitely things to look at. With regards to menopause hormone therapy, there is a lot of chatter about it, and I want people to really understand that it is a therapy. It is not a replacement because, again, it does not stop body composition change. You have to do that through diet and exercise. It is good to protect the bones, but it's not a treatment for osteoporosis because the hormones, again, are not metabolized and used exactly the same as our natural hormone. But it is definitely a time and a place to use it if you're going through surgical menopause. Most physicians will say, okay, we're going to keep you on it till around the age that you would normally hit menopause, which is in your early 50s. And if you're going through your surgical menopause right before you turn 40, then that's you know, 10 years that you're looking at it, but also take in mind that people are on oral contraceptive pills for 20 or so years, right? So it's just the eye to the benefits will outweigh the risks. Mm. But if you are someone who is going through perimenopause naturally, it's not the stopgap. Yeah. It's you want to look at diet and exercise. And then if your symptomology is so bad, it's interfering with your normal life, then you can talk about using it as a therapy to help. So two different Two different ends of the spectrum there. Totally, yeah. Um, and, but you mentioned like you can feel like a 40-year-old woman but not necessarily maybe be as fast as in your 20s. I, I think there's a lot of people who started running a little bit later and like for me, my best marathon times were in between my third and fourth babies and I was 34. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, I still want to do that. Like is that yeah. possible? It is if you are very attentive to less volume and more and more quality training. So we see a lot of women will hit their prime in endurance racing in their mid 30s yeah. up to their early 40s. Yep. Right? And a lot of people will fall into it later and we notice that people who are falling into endurance a little bit later in life are more resilient to stress. And we see a lot of women who are setting records between babies or after they had a baby because their bodies have become more resilient to the stress. Yeah. Okay. That's been my biggest hang up with this surgery. Like I need to do it because it is 
a huge stressor in my life every time I get my numbers checked and get my ultrasound to check them and everything. But I'm like, I I think I, you know, my kids are all going to be in elementary school finally and I'll have more energy because I don't have like babies and toddlers and I, I think I want to go for it, you know, but yeah. um, it, ma- it just makes me nervous that the surgery is going to like totally screw me up. Yeah, but you go in prepared and you have those conversations in advance and you have a plan as you're coming out of it. Knowing that the recovery part, you're going to feel awful. But yeah. after any big surgery, you yeah, awful. Yeah, and I've had plenty of those. Yeah, and you can slowly build back out, but just know that your body is going to go through this immediate change. And that's why you want to have things set up with regards to hormone therapy and diet and, and diet changes because the training is going to come a little bit later. Um, okay, so sleep, anxiety, hot flashes... Are we managing all this through the dim pill and like diet as well? (laughs) Yeah. And adaptogens. Adaptogens. Yeah. Adaptogens. um, So they are phytochemicals in certain plants that work with your body's stress hormones. So we hear about medicinal mushrooms like reishi mushrooms. That all falls in the whole adaptogen thing. A lot of people put maca in their smoothie. Mm -hmm. That's an adaptogen. Ashwagandha is another one. Shashandra is great for brain fog. So if we go through like some specific adaptogens, ashwagandha is great for de-stressing. So it allows people to get into that parasympathetic. They get out of that tired but wired. They're able to get into better sleep. Shashandra is more of a focus one. So if you have problems with brain fog and focusing, then Shashandra is really good, but you want to take it in the morning, not at night, because it can interfere with sleeping. Mm-hmm. And we look at maca. Maca is good overall, but it is a little bit of a stimulant. So you, again, you want to take it in the morning. Um, so there's lots of ways of using adaptogens with DIM. DIM's not an adaptogen, but it is very beneficial for hormone metabolism based on what your symptoms are. So if you're like, I am so stressed and I can't sleep and I'm having hot flashes, a lot of that is that sympathetic drive. So let's use ashwagandha and see how that works. Or if you're someone who's like, I am so tired, I can't focus, but I also can't sleep. Let's use some shashandra. And then for sleep, maybe we'll add in some holy basil or we'll add in some rhodiola. And it's a stepwise increase because it does take time because it's not like a pharmaceutical that works right away. Actually goes in and reads what's going on with cortisol. It reads what's going on with your adrenals and it works with it to dial things up and dial things down. So... I'm super curious what the best form is because, you know, you see a lot of like herbal teas that have these different herbs in them, but like, where are we getting the most bang for our buck? Um, You want to look at a specific dosage of the active part of the plant. So when you are looking at um, ashwagandha and you flip over the label, it'll say three and a half percent with aneloids. And that's what you want per serving. So if you're looking at tea that says, hey, it's a maca tea or it's ashwagandha and sleepy time tea, not a lot of active components in that. Mm-hmm. So we look at, like, personally, I think ashwagandha smells like horse manure. Oh, so boy. I, I know. <laughs> so I'm like, nah, I can't take it. But I use it in a capsule form. Okay. Right? So I don't I take the powder and put it in my smoothie or I won't drink it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I can take it as capsule form. But shashandra to me tastes a little bit nutty and like coffee or oh, other yum. people are like, Oh, it's so bitter. So I put the Shishandra straight in my coffee. Yeah. So yeah, it's whatever works for you really. 
but just making sure that you have that active component and it should say so on the label. Is it true that stuff in powder form though is absorbed better? Uh, the only thing that interferes really is if it's in a tablet form. Because okay. then it's compounded against something. Okay. So it can be powder. It can be a capsule because the powder's in the capsule. It can be liquid. Those are all great. But when you get a hard tablet, that's when things are a little bit, doesn't really get absorbed that well. Okay. It does seem like most are in capsules. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So what I want more than anything is people who are like, you know, maybe even in 10 years, I'm going to go through perimenopause or what, or people that are going through it now, wherever, whatever stage they're on, I don't want it to be something that people dread and get sad about and anxious about. So how can we empower our listeners? I know. And a lot of it has to do with our Western society, like putting such a negative scope on women aging. I mean, what was it? Leonardo DiCaprio has a history of just dating 25 year olds, Uh, right? So annoying. I know. So you have all of these negative things about it. But if we look at other cultures, especially the Asian cultures, right? Women are revered when they get older. I love because that. Because they have, right? So we just have to change and really empower women to have a different mindset. And also being educated about what's going on with their physiology. Then you could take steps to prevent the, you know, all of the things that Western society projects about menopause, about getting fat, getting sick, getting slow, slowing down. You don't have to do that. If you understand what's going on, then you can put the steps in because we aren't a linear algorithm. We don't age in a linear fashion like men do. We have to take steps and be proactive about what's happening because no one else will. So if we're educated and going, hey, my hormones are changing and I know that is affecting my metabolism, it's affecting my gut microbiome, I need to change my training, even though I'm an endurance runner, I still need to do some high intensity stuff. I need to do some heavy lifting to complement it. I need to eat fruit and veg. All of those things really empower women because their body comp doesn't change as much. They can progress in their training. They can get fitter. They can get faster. I mean, there are a lot of women that I've talked to who picked up things like mountain biking in their 60s. Love it. And all of a sudden they feel more powerful and they're getting stronger and leaner. Because they are putting weight training in with their mountain biking. Um, so Fitness by Joan is some one that I love to follow because she's an 81-year-old uh, lifting, like she lifts. But if you look at her 10 years ago, she would be the typical image of what Western society projects as a menopausal, kind of obese-ish, not a lot of muscle. But now you look at her and she's like, fit and she has muscles and she can lift. So it's never too late to start Mm. and just really think about what is going to empower you with regards to how much control you want. I'm a control freak. So I want to know everything. So I want to implement everything because I don't want to fall into what society projects as a menopause woman. I want to fall into someone that is strong and can go through her life being empowered and doing whatever I want to do. And then also have it from the Asian society where people want to come talk to me when I'm 80 and know about my experiences. And Joan probably feels so much stronger. I mean, she does. Yes, she does. Absolutely. Um, I just want to like zone in on what you said about like societies, other cultures and societies like holding women who are of that age to like very – like they look up to them because I feel like 
we have this problem with feeling like we become irrelevant as we age. Yeah, we do. And it stems from like, I mean, I say this a lot in a lot of my lectures about the rise of of the feminist and women entering the workforce. And we're like, yay, sweet. But there's backlash even on that where like JFK was working with um, Eleanor Roosevelt and she was really trying to push people to work outside of the home and feel empowered and to bring money back. And he said specifically in a speech with her by his side, we want to encourage women to contribute to society and to earn money as long as it doesn't take away from their primary responsibility, which is in the home. And I was like, this is the exact problem because we have all of this empowerment, but there's always this undercurrent and backlash in almost everything that we see. So this grassroots of women empowering each other, we have to stick together because there's so much of that cultural nuance that just in some of the language that we use and some of the things that we do that really kind of pushes backwards and keep perpetuating that women are kind of defunct after they turn 40. So we have to rally together and keep this conversation going and showing how strong we are and how we can contribute and we are part of society. And actually without women, there wouldn't be society because there would be no kids. Yeah. Kids would, right? So, yeah. And then what's it been like you walking through this on your own as you've done all the research? Like, do you research even more as you, you know, get to certain ages? Like, oh, I better figure this out, even though you've already done so much research already? All the time. I'm always <laughs> learning. Always learning. Like, science is always evolving. And I want to know what the next thing is, especially in today's world where whoever has the loudest voice on social media is right. And I'm always being asked and countered by trends where people are like, well, so-and-so said this. It's like, I don't have an agenda to sell anything. I have an agenda to get the science out. Mm. So what I'm saying isn't based on opinion like those people, right? People with a loud voice are, are often based on opinion or something that worked for them. If you come to me and say, but so-and-so said that, I often feel like, ah, right? Like get a little PTSD. Am I not right? Am I not right? Uh-huh. So I always want to be looking at the science of what's going on because I want to be able to disseminate it in the the best way possible. Again, I don't have an agenda other than to try to get women to understand their bodies and empower them. Um, I had a random question I forgot to ask, but I wrote it down as you were talking earlier. Uh, you talk a lot about getting, you know, more colorful fruit and, ve- fruit and veggies in, in your body. How much does it matter to get uncooked? I know we talked about fermented too, but like if I'm eating like, you know, raw broccoli, raw cauliflower, how much more nutrient dense is that than if I like roast it? Well, actually, if you're doing raw stuff, you should sprinkle some flaxseed oil on it to be able to absorb more of the nutrients. Like a lot of people are like, I don't want dressing on my salad. It's like, just put a little bit of olive oil or something. So you actually absorb more. Um, yeah. So as long as you're getting it in, it's good. It doesn't matter. You're not cooking out a lot of the nutrients. Um, and when you you said flaxseed, does it matter what kind of oil any, just, you're just saying something fatty to like help you absorb it better. Yeah. And if you don't want oil, then mix in avocado. Okay. Okay. Um, awesome. I think that ending on that note of empowering, feeling empowered as you walk through these phases is, is really important. And, 
And I want people to know you are relevant. You still matter. You will matter in 20 years and you can still be strong. Exactly. Yes. Um, do you have any other messages that you want to like sign off with in regards to this topic that we might not have hit? Everyone goes through it, right? So you're not alone. Like a lot of women are like, I don't understand what's happening and I can't talk about it. But know that you have so many friends around you who are probably going to experience it or are experiencing it or also staying in the shadows. Don't broach the conversation because the more support we have around it and the less you feel isolated, then the more the conversations happen. And that's what we're after. Thank you so much, Dr. Stacy Sims. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Dr. Stacy Sims, for coming on the podcast. It's always so wonderful to learn from you. And I'm just so grateful to have you as a resource for women athletes all over the world. If you all want to learn more about Dr. Stacy Sims, go to drstacysims.com. Don't forget, if you go check out her micro learning courses, you can use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, for 20% off your orders. Thank you, Inside Tracker and Gooder, for supporting this podcast. Sandyboyproductions.com is where you can find the show notes. Just go to the I'll Have Another tab. It'll be the most recent episode. And you can also go ahead and sign up for our newsletter there so that the show notes can be just delivered directly to your inbox every single week. We put timestamps on there so you can just go to the exact spot you want to find if there's something you didn't remember and you wanted to go back and listen. And then sponsor codes are all in there. Um, InsideTracker.com slash another will get you 20% off when you go to that exact landing page. Um, gooder, gooder.com slash another. You can use the code another15 for 15% off. And then Lindsay 10 for the Donna Marathon weekend. L-A-N-D-S-E-Y 1-0 for 10% off there. Uh, all right, friends. Well, thanks for being here. I hope you're enjoying the Chicago series we are doing as well. We've got two more episodes coming out next week from Chicago Marathon weekend. I'm super excited about that. I hope you'll enjoy. Uh, thank you for being here and we will see you next week on All Have Another.